Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restored our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Yesterday we said that uh, many of the Psalms are like uh, pictures without frames. The translations that are given to this Psalm set, most of the translations set a frame for the Psalm. In that opening line, you find him saying in the translation which I have, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, and immediately you have it dated as a, a psalm that was written after Israel had been carried into Babylonian captivity and brought back. And so it would be a song about the mighty deliverance which God gave in bringing back the children of Israel from uh, Babylon, where they had been carried captive and kept for 70 years. But there's a little bit of a problem in the Hebrew, and that the word which is translated uh, captivity, and it's a noun instead, when the Lord turned the captivity, turned the Shavit, of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. And the interesting thing is that when you get down to verse 4, you have a very similar word used, except that the one consonant is transposed. And the two uh, nouns come from two verbs. It's either S-H-B-Y or S-H-Y-B. And if you take the S-H-Y-B, it simply means to turn. If you take the S-H-B-Y, it is uh, captivity. And the verb brought back is that verb S-H-Y-B, and then the next word fits it. So it is very possible, and you may have a translation uh, there are some translations. The New uh, Revised Standard Version translates the first verse when Yahweh t brought back, no, Yahweh, when Yahweh restored the fortunes of Israel. So that I think it could be taken that the psalm actually is speaking about a time when a person's circumstances go wrong. When everything, you're moving along and you have no anticipation of any trouble, and then suddenly something happens and bang, everything has gone wrong for you. Now, there's nobody in the world who hasn't had that experience. And if you, or if he has, he hasn't lived very long. But uh, if you'll go through the psalm, it is basically dealing with that. First you get in the first four verses, Israel has had great problems, and God turned those problems around. God turned those problems around in such a glorious way that he said, uh, we were like people in a dream. It's too good to be true. 
It, uh, that, and that's what happens. There are those moments when, as we said yesterday, God breaks into your life, unexpectedly breaks in, and you know that it's his action. And when he has stepped in and acted that way, it's almost you didn't anticipate it, so it's too good to be true. And the Lord has turned your circumstances. He says, when God did that, our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. And the word for joy is a word which really has the, the meaning of a ringing cry. You just shout out your word, your words of praise and thanksgiving to God because of what he has done for you. Now, uh, then he says, that deliverance that came to you and that change of circumstance where God acted and you knew that uh, he had acted on your behalf, and I suspect there's not a person in this bunch. I could stand here and regale you for an hour. There were moments when uh, I wondered what I was going to do the next moment, and the phone rang, and, you know, you said, you didn't know it was coming, but there God had met you and done what, what you had to have to be delivered in that. And you were filled with joy and laughter. Then there is this very precious thing. He says, God delivered the people of Israel in such a way that in the latter part of verse 2, he says, Then it was said among the nations, this translation says, the Hebrew word is goyim. Now, if you know anything about Israel and know anything about a Jew's uh, relationship to the rest of the world, you know who the goyim are. The goyim are the other people. The goyim are the people that aren't us. The goyim are the non-Jews, and the goyim are the unclean people. The goyim are the lost people. The goyim are the people that are in darkness. The goyim are the people who don't know the truth, don't know the way. He says, so what he's talking about is his pagan neighbors. So what you have the psalmist saying is, there was a day when we needed help. Our circumstances had all gone wrong. God acted, acted in such a specific, definite, unexpected way that we were filled with joy, and uh, our neighbors looked on and said, for heaven's sake, their God has done great things for them. Now, uh, that has become precious to me, and then it fits with some of the things that have been said earlier. Uh, we, uh, One of the things that happens if a person walks with God is, honest pagans around them will say, uh, will testify for them. Now, it's good when you testify, but it's much better when your pagan neighbors can testify for you. I never read this, but that I think of the story which I'm sure told me about. One day he was traveling, back during the Second World War, he was traveling, trying to get, coming down the east shore of Virginia, uh, trying to get to Portsmouth that evening for a service, and he had a ferry he had to catch at 6 o'clock, and he was short on time, so he was going uh, keeping up with the speed limit, bearing down, heading for the ferry. And he passed a GI, a soldier, who was standing there. Those days were different. You didn't pass a soldier in those days. You stopped and picked him up. So he stopped and picked him up, and the guy got in the front seat and sat down, and they started talking. And Dr. Church said as he drove along, he had a strange urge that he ought to stop. He said, nah, he said he didn't live by impulse, but he said uh, there was some impulses that were different. And he said, this was one of those. He said, uh, it just wouldn't go away and it kept getting stronger and more ominous. So he said, I decided I'd just pull off on the berm, not knowing why, but he said, I just pulled off on the berm. And as I reached up to cut the engine off, the front left tire blew out. 
he said, uh, I took the key out of the car, went around to the back of the car, uh, car, opened the trunk, got the jack. He said, I had the front end jacked halfway up before that soldier moved. And he said, uh, he finally got out and walked around rather slowly and stared at me and said, sir, did you know that tire was going to blow out? And he said, oh, no. Well, he said, man, why under the sun did you stop? Well, he said, the Lord told me to. Said the GI stood there and just shook his head and said, Mister, I'm not a Christian, but man, there's nothing in the world I wouldn't give for your connection. Now, uh, that story, I've, I think I've thought of it a thousand times. I never read that verse. When I read that verse, I think of John Church and that GI. Now, there are moments when you, your neighbors have witnessed for you if you've walked with Christ. And there are no moments when our neighbors have. No credit to us. When God healed Denny, our pagan neighbors said, uh, God's been good to them and has done something. Uh, and uh, it's hap- it, it happens in the life of everyone that's faithful. But it's a wonderful thing when uh, God is, his presence and his blessing in your life is such that, that your pagan neighbors testify for you. Then you find that the Jews are saying, that's right. Yahweh, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Now that's the uh, first half of the psalm. And it tells us there are, circ- there are days when everything is wrong. There are days when in the wrongness of our circumstances and things can go wrong for Christians just as well as for pagans. God lets it just like with Job. And then when the things go wrong at the re- appropriate moment, God in his own way and in his own wisdom acts and there is deliverance and you find yourself flooded with joy and gratitude to God and people around you say that, that, that's remarkable and you say that's certainly true. Then you come to the second part of the psalm. And the second part of the psalm begins, Restore our situation, O Lord, like streams in the desert. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now what he's saying is, uh, things have gone wrong again, Lord, and I need you to help me again. Uh The fact you did it in the past, that's glorious. And we look back and give thanks. But today, Lord, we're in a mess. And we need you to come. And if you don't come, we're going to be in difficulty. And he says, the way, let me tell you the way I'd like for you to come. I'd like for you to come like streams in the Negev. Now, the fascinating thing, of course, is that there are no streams in the Negev. The only time it, uh, you ever get a bit of a stream in the Negev is when it rains, and it almost never rains in the Negev. So what he's saying is, uh, I remember uh, I found once uh, an article in, there was a new, little news report in the New York Times years ago, I wish I'd saved it, about in the Sahara Desert, there were a group of uh, people who were drowned to death in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and I learned something about deserts that I didn't know before. You see, as a southerner, I always thought a desert was a sand pile. My idea of a desert came from the east coast of North Carolina with the sand dunes. You know, the wind would blow it, and you had trouble walking through it. But a lot of the desert is hard-baked, and as hard as almost rock. But it's, it's sand, but it's hard. And if it rains there, if it does, when it does, that water is going to seek the lowest place it can find, and it seek it as fast as it can find it. And there was a group of people in an oasis, and this flood came flooding down, and it came so precipitously and so fast that they were caught and could not get out, and so they drowned in the middle of the Sahara Desert. 
Now, that'd be interesting to explain to your progeny. Oh, yeah, my father died in the Sahara Desert. He was drowned. Now, uh, that's the unexpected. It is the uh, sudden, but it is perfectly adequate to make the circumstance change and to make the seed begin to germinate and the produce begin to produce and the crop begin to produce. He says, now, Lord, that's the kind of answer I need right now. I need you to act suddenly, precipitately, unexpectedly, uh, but in, in, in a sufficient way to meet our needs. Now, uh, there are times when, uh, when, when you feel, Lord, that's where we are. Uh, I thought this morning, uh, I would, uh, let, and, uh, of such a significance that you say, wait a minute, this is something only God could do. Now, those of you that, uh, have known us over a period of time, know that one of our concerns has been the disappearance of the evangelist out of American Protestant life, as we said yesterday. Uh, apart from the Assemblies of God, the Church of the Nazarene, and the Southern Baptist Conventions, there is hardly a denomination in this country that is going to promote the role of an evangelist. Now, I believe that the role of evangelist, as I said yesterday, is a valid biblical role. And uh, there's the two things that impress me on that. Billy Graham has never thought of himself as anything but an evangelist. Can you feature 20th century Christianity without Billy Graham? In 1968, some many of you have heard me share this. You remember there was a wealthy man who came to him and said, if you will cooperate and work with me, we will build a university comparable in some measure to Yale or Harvard, and we will name it after you, William Graham, and we will make you the president. Billy Graham prayed over that thing for six months and came back and said, I'm sorry, God didn't call me to be an educator. God called me to be an evangelist, a specific, definite call. I would be out of his will if I went into education. He said the next time he saw that man was in a reception line at the White House, with a receipt, with a, a reception for uh, the Queen of England. And that man was there and he came up and said, just think, Dr. Graham, you could be the president of a major university in this country now if you would only listened." And Billy looked back and said, no, God gave me a call and I would be in disobedience if I had called. Now, is he right? Did God give him a call? The Southern Baptist Church, Conven the Southern Baptist Convention, fortunately recognizes that role and established him, ordained him to that. But now the Methodist Church gives you fits over that kind of thing. The Presbyterian Church, there's hardly an evangelist in the Presbyterian Church. The Episcopal Church, I think there's one in this country, and he's an Anglican. Uh, you can just keep going. There are not many Lutherans around either. The great chunk of American denominationalism does not have them. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I find myself with buffeted between two emotions today. One of them is God is at work and it's marvelous. He's at work in the strangest places in the most unusual ways. And you get these stories of it. Uh, I've shared with some of you, I had the privilege of being in Moscow, Russia, back in the end of May and walking around uh, Red Square and finding evidences of God at work in a place where I never dreamed I'd have a chance to be and uh, was there for a graduating class for a seminary. Their first graduating class, there were nine graduates and three of them were medical doctors who shifted their professions. 
Now, God is doing incredible things in many places in the world. But the interesting thing is most of it is outside of denominations. It's parachurch work, the matter. The Jesus film, uh, in the history of the church, there are few things like the Jesus film and its, and its influence around the world. We're a lot like in that passage in Mark, you will remember when Jesus had been upbraiding the disciples because they were arguing about who was going to have first place in his kingdom. And John said, well, Master, we did one good thing today. And he said, fine, what's that? And John said, we found a fellow casting out devils in your name and we forbade him because he's not one of us. And Jesus said, now, wait a minute. Uh, you had the power and lost it because yesterday that father brought his son to you and you couldn't help him. Now, uh, don't kick the guy who's got it out there. I have come to see the guy who was out there is the parachurch movement and the, and the disciples is the denomination. Now, the power was out there that day. It wasn't with the apostles, the, the ordained apostles, you know. But God didn't give up on the apostles because God had a role for Peter, James, and John, and Andrew that he didn't have. We don't even know the name of that parachurch guy out there. And the future was determined a good bit of it by those 12 apostles, you see. Now, uh, it grieves me that the denominations in this country, can you name a denominational figure who is a symbol, first of all, of a voice for righteousness in this country? I'd just be interested, off the top of your head, can you give me quickly a national figure who is a symbol of righteousness, uh, who is a denominational figure? Can you give me one? Nationally known? Denominational? Oh, no. Well, I, all right. Southern Baptist, but he's not speaking for the Southern Baptist. All of his work is outside the church. Yes. You know the only international figure that is a symbol of righteousness in our world now? Is the Pope. Now, Billy is a symbol, but his work is interdenominational. You don't have a Methodist bishop who's a national symbol. <laughs> the uh, religion editor of Time Magazine was asked how much consideration they paid to the count to the bishops of the United Methodist Church, and his response was, "What public do they have?" I don't know about you, but I grieve over that. I grieve over that because uh, I noticed in the Old Testament God never asked a prophet to start a new Jerusalem. And when they were worshiping Astarte in the temple in Jerusalem, in sexual orgies, God never said to Jeremiah, start a new Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what to all to do with that. <laughs> but uh, the parachurch groups have their place and are a witness, but they are not going to build in your community what a church ought to build in your community, are they? Now, thank God for Fellowship of Christian Athletes, brother. I believe in that. But it is not a substitute for a church that will take care of the babies, take care of the children, take care of the young people, take care of the young marrieds, take care of the young professionals, and take care of the old folks, and feed them and nurture them, and stand as a corporate witness in a community to Christ. 
Now, that's what a church used to do in this country. Yeah. Now, do we give up on that? Now, uh, I've wondered, how do you tackle that? Do you know the most discouraged group of people I minister to anywhere in this country? It's preachers. The most despondent people I ever meet are preachers. They're trapped. Now, the incredible thing, there's hardly a bishop in this country who will appoint a man now as a full-time evangelist. And are you aware that in the Methodist Church, some of you are not Methodists, so you be patient with those of us that are Methodists, where we talk about our sect or the family for a minute. But are you aware that the mission sending agency in Atlanta, which is Methodist, completely Methodist, there's not a bishop in this country that will appoint a person, a preacher, to go to the mission field under it because it doesn't fit their patterns. They don't, they can't quite control it, and so they will not do it. And God has opened the door for us that's closed. All I can say is there are moments when he turns the captivity. <laughs> there are moments when he turns the circumstances. And all you can do, you can, you can count on it. Those first four verses were uh, uh, how we, Ron and I and those of us in FAS felt our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And uh, I'm sure there's some people when they heard about it said, man, God has been good to these people. Uh, so God is at work and God is at work corporately and God is at work individually. Now, the thing I wanted to do to get into the rest of this is, but what do you do before he acts? <laughs> what do you do before the rain comes in the Negev and before the uh, act of God comes? Those last two verses, and I've heard many interpretations of these, and uh, uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think I'm right. Uh, uh, and I've never heard this interpretation. So listen closely to me as I deal with verses 5 and 6 and uh, see if it makes any sense to you uh, and see if it doesn't fit life and doesn't fit some of our circumstances right here. Now, he's talking about the fact things have gone wrong and we need God to help us. We need God to act. Then he gives his conclusion. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Now, there are some commentators that say, if you weep when you pray, your prayers will be more effective, and this is the verse that proves it. Now, I don't believe that's what's being said. Now, I think there's value in tears. I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. But God doesn't answer you because of the tears. Uh, those who sow in tears. I think we're back to what we were talking about yesterday. You remember the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, when things are sad enough that you, uh, bad enough, the only appropriate thing is to weep. When you are in a position where the only appropriate thing to do is to weep, so you get it in verse 5, those who sow in tears, in verse 6, he who goes out weeping. The context is sad, it's miserable. The only appropriate thing is weeping, tears. Then in that hour, sow. Now suddenly one day it dawned on me working on this. You know the one thing that nobody ever wants to do when things are so bad you want to sit down and weep? Is sow. 
And the reason you don't want to reap so when you're weeping is because you want an immediate answer to your problem. And sowing is not the immediate answer to anything. Sowing is building for a future, not for a present. And worse, sowing is primarily building for somebody else instead of yourself. Because when you sow, you usually are thinking of others beyond yourself. So he says, those when it's that sad, the only appropriate thing is to weep. If you'll get out and sow. You'll think about tomorrow when all you want to do is think about today. Sit down in your misery and self-pity. Or if you will think about tomorrow, plan for it and build for it. Then it says, he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now, uh, there are certain advantages in knowing uh, some of the original languages. And the Hebrew here has something in it that the, you cannot put into the English translation. There's no way you can put it into the English translation. But it says, he who goes out, and in it, the, what the Hebrew says, he who going goes. You have an infinitive and then a finite verb. He who going goes. And so the word halak, to go, occurs twice. When you get that in Hebrew in that form, he who going goes. The idea is persistent, continuous pursuit of what you need to do. He who going keeps on going when you don't want to move, when you don't want to lift another foot. He who going keeps on going, putting one foot in front of the other, he says. And then you get another uh, Hebrew expression, coming he will come. Or returning, he will return. The word actually is coming, he will come. And when you get that form of it, it is the first is a, uh, uh, is one kind of infinitive, the second is another kind of infinitive. And when you get that second kind of infinitive with a finite verb, what it means is not continuity, continuously persistent pursuit, but what it means is absolute certainty. It is the form that you have when God says, if you seed of that tree in the garden, dying you will die. Motamu. Dying you will die. It is an absolute certainty. There will be no exception to it. He who puts his foot in front of him and keeps on going when he wants to quit and sit down and weep his heart out. Let me tell you, coming he will come. It will be as sure as the consequences of sin are. <laughs> it's as sure as the character of God. Coming, he will come, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, I don't know what your circumstances are, where you are back home, and what you're facing, and what the things are in your life. But in those moments when you, you're ready to give up and quit, the way I sometimes get on the church, will you forgive me for that? Uh, our country, it's in a sad shape, isn't it? But if we will set our face, we're not alone. We're in touch with the one who is the sovereign Lord, the Holy One. He has resources. It is possible even for a revival to come to this country and change the character of our culture. Amen. It is possible for even for a revival to come to this country 
and change the character of our culture. And the only way I know to do it is do what he says here. When everything is wrong, just decide what's right and going, keep on going. With the confidence that because of him coming, we will come. So I don't know what your problems are. And you don't know what mine are. But I think we know what we need to do. What we need is his kingdom.